So we've uh, kind of, I guess, five or so weeks into this journey through the book of Acts. And as I've kind of mentioned before, it's sort of an epic journey. It really has no end in sight, but it's this kind of picture that's more than just a movement through Scripture. It's, it's a call. The book of Acts is really a call on the church, on the followers of Christ. It's a call for you, and it's a call for me, and it's a story that we are brought into and called to live into. And so we've sort of been exploring it, not just from the standpoint of saying, historically, this is what the early church looks like and what was happening in sort of the life of first century believers, but really, what does it mean for you and I, right, as we follow Christ together? And so that's kind of the framework we've used, and, and I'm not going to use all the backstory, get you the book of Acts. We're kind of way past all that now. I'm just going to give you a little recap of where we were last week and how it leads into where we are. So we're in this incredible thing that has happened, this Pentecost movement, this giving of the Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit has been given, and we're seeing some incredible things take place. The church has been gathered and called, and the pneuma, the rock of God, as we talked about, the breath of God, literally fills the room. And and these apostles, these disciples, begin to speak in these other languages that people outside that are gathered there for this pilgrimage feast called Pentecost begin to hear and understand. And they're blown away. They're going, how are we hearing these wonders of God proclaimed in our own languages? These people had come from miles and miles all over the known world to celebrate the Jewish pilgrimage feast, one of the three called Pentecost. They were there. They were remembering God's promise, his protection, his provision, right? The giving of the law. They were celebrating all of those things. And the the Holy Spirit shows up. The promised Holy Spirit comes, and these gathered apostles and believers begin to do miraculous things. And the crowd is blown away. And so Peter stands up in front of all this massive, big crowd of Jewish people that are there for these religious fe- this religious festival, and he begins to explain to them what they'd seen. And this is what we looked at last week. And he gives the first recorded sermon of anybody else that wasn't Jesus in all of the New Testament. Acts records 14 of them, but this one is the first one. And Peter lays out the gospel in a profound way. And we explored this at, in depth last week as we sort of talked about the fact that Peter said, look, Now is the day. Today is the day. Now is the time. We've been waiting on the Messiah. That Messiah has come, and that Messiah is Jesus. And his death was not an accident, but it was a planned movement, redemptive movement of God, right? And then he talks about the resurrection not being an accident or not being a myth, but a real thing where death could not hold Jesus, that he was the foretold Messiah, and that God had raised him from the dead because death no longer could hold him. And he talked about surrendering our lives to the Lordship of Christ. He says, all of Israel, be rest assured in this, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And we explore the idea of the messianic title of the Christ over and against the Lordship of Jesus and what it means to surrender our lives. And then finally, he calls them all to repentance and to be baptized. And we explore the idea of repentance not being a turn from a specific behavior or way of life, but that the Greek word here for repentance actually meant change of mind. We need a totally new mindset to understand what was taking place and how these Jewish believers would sort of do all that. Now, all that to say this, right at the end there, all right, Luke records this, and 3,000 were added to the number on that day. So the church in Jerusalem is exploding. I mean, literally, it is going from 120 to over 3,000 plus overnight. And the text we're going to look at today at the very end says, and daily God was adding to the number of those who were being saved. Now, the church was growing at a rapid rate, but you've got to understand it's still a tiny 
bit of the population. Now, all those people were in town from all these other cities, right, celebrating the Pentecost. It's safe to assume that they returned back to their homes, leaving, oh, I don't know, guessing somewhere in the vicinity of 500 or less actual believers that were living in Jerusalem. Estimates range that Jerusalem at the time held between 100,000 and 200,000 people, right? So that little group of believers makes up less than like a half or a quarter percent of the entire population. And the gathered Christ followers met together not because the church dictated the need for programs or dictated the need for services or any of those things, but because it was necessity. They were a tiny bit of the population, and the Jewish people were skeptical of this new movement called the Way, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. And soon, the Jewish people become extremely hostile to these Christ followers. And they live together in community out of necessity. And the relationship in the early church was one that was marked by this sort of high rela- highly relational community living. That's what we're going to explore today. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we're going to start. And before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for, um, I thank you that you allow us to worship you. God, I thank you that you draw us to a place where we can have a common heart that says, God, how great are you? And Lord, how much do we need you? And we surrender our hearts to you. And Lord, as a community, um, we thank you that you have given us a place to go together. That we might do things like celebrate our children, make promises together, be a part of each other's lives. Lord, this community is it's not perfect. It's a mess. But God, it's, it's a community that you have called to live in a certain way. And I pray that as we open your word this morning, what we'll see is that call to community living, which so many of us are opposed to and afraid of. And God, what I pray that you would do is you begin to break our understandings of what it means to be church. And God, begin to reshape them by what we see in scripture. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to to teach you something new or fresh this morning. God, to open your spiritual eyes, just pray that God would teach you. Pray for someone around you. We say this each week. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you. Just pray that God would um, move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. pray that you would open your word to us and teach us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, we do that little prayer thing. Everyone makes fun of me usually because they can recite it word for word because I do it each week. But they uh, we do it intentionally because I want us to be in the habit of praying for other people. And I had, a, I think I told this story a while back, but I had a, um, a young lady, new kind of, oh, they've been married for about 10 years. She came up to me after worship one day a few years ago and said, I just want you to know that I've been really convicted lately. And I said, okay, tell me about it. And she said, you know, the only time I ever pray for my husband, um, honestly, is when you ask me to before we open the word. And she goes, and I, I feel horrible about that, but that's just the truth. It's the only time that I take a moment and say, God, teach his heart today. And she said, it's challenged me to think differently about my own time with the Lord, my own prayer life. And and I think a lot of us, although we might not say that out loud, um, would kind of be the same way and saying, you know, I don't spend that much time like deeply 
praying that God would teach the people around me, the people that I care about the most. We come to church with people. Sometimes it's a moment to say, God, I want you to move deeply in their heart. We're so driven to say, God, church is about me. What are you going to show me? Do I like this? Do you have this? Do I go to that? But instead, what if we existed as a community that was for each other? What if you came to be a part of worship, not because you're expecting something, but because you want God to use you? Anyway, it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but like it. Oh, man, i got to go through this stuff fast. I just looked at my watch. Okay, so check this out. Acts chapter 2. All right, we're going to dive into it. Let's just get going. So here it is. This is the sort of quintessential picture of what hap- what's happening in the early church. In fact, everybody sort of points back to this to say, this is what church looked like in the first century. This is what we need to go back to. The reality is this little snapshot is just a tiny picture of a much more kind of beautifully complex relationship that wasn't perfect. The early church was filled with all kinds of heresy and struggles, and they fought like crazy. So these little five or seven verses that are here are not this little perfect picture of everybody holding hands, singing kumbaya, but it was a picture of what was unfolding. And I do think it's something that we should anchor our lives to and actually say, God, is this where we're engaging and what we're called to? So look at this picture as we see this sort of first movement of the church. This is what Peter is basically saying. He's going... As our Peter leads into as he gives his sermon, he's leading into the fact that the church is about to do this together. And then Luke records, and this is how this plays out, this gospel sermon that you just heard Luke give. And he says this. He says, they devoted themselves, 242, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The life of the church in the first century was one honestly out of necessity. They were, there were no generational Christians. Your mom wasn't a Christian. Your granddad wasn't a Christian. You didn't have generational Christians. You didn't even have a Bible. The Bible had yet to be put together in the format that we have it. There were no podcasts from Matt Chandler on great teachings about worship or whatever. None of that stuff existed. You were the first generation believer. And as we see Luke writing here, most likely, if you weren't one of the original 120, you just gave your life to Jesus like three days ago, right? You were living in an environment that was becoming increasingly hostile to followers of Christ. Because they believed this Jesus was the Messiah, and the Jewish people believed that he wasn't. And as we'd see over the next 10 or 20 years, persecution becomes an incredibly real thing. And the early church gathered together out of necessity. And the gospel is meant to be lived in community. And what we're going to see this morning is that this highly relational community is really what we are called to be a part of. So as we look at this, we see a few things right off the bat. We see that the church kind of gathered together and they devoted themselves to really four things. There are five things that distinguish it, but four things they devoted themselves to when they gathered together and they shared their life together. I'm going to look at those really quickly because I think they're important. Because most of our understanding with church is what happens between 1030 and noon on a Sunday morning. That's how we define church. But all of us know, because we've talked about it so much and you you guys have read scripture, that the church is different than that. And this is what Luke is saying defined the early church. So they gathered together, this new group of believers, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. To those four things, they devoted themselves. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, teaching has always been a part of Scripture, right? Even if you go all back to the New Testament or to the Old Testament, teaching was an important part of religious life. We see Jesus continuing that trend as he goes around the countryside teaching large groups, teaching the inner circle of the disciples. Teaching was a part of life. It was a part of religious life. And so it's natural to see that the early church gathered and they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. There were no other Christian books out there. You couldn't go to Mardell's and pick up a few things to kind of tickle whatever your fancy was about Christian self-help understandings or whatever. Like you were sitting at the feet of the apostles saying, what is it that Jesus taught you? Teach that to me. Because you remember, the apostles had to be there when Jesus was resurrected. We went through that whole thing when, when Matthias was added to their number. What did Jesus tell you? Tell us. And they would sit at the feet of the apostles and they would listen to their teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching. It's really why teaching is such a part of our, even our Western church model is because teaching was prevalent and it was important because it's how we understood the depth of Scripture and how we understood what it meant to live as a Christ follower. And the early church devoted themselves to that. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, there's probably been no other Christian word that has been misunderstood more than the word fellowship, right? This, in this instance, it's actually the Greek word koinonia. And it really means to live with intention, to share with intention, right? So it means to sort of share with the intentionality of living together. That's kind of what the word means, but we've sort of relegated fellowship to hanging out, right? Fellowship in the Christian sense that we use is I get five minutes before church, I have a donut, or I go in the hallway in our building, or we actually have a fellowship hall where you're supposed to go and get cookies after church, and, and as long as I talk to everybody, we'll put in some good fellowship time, and we name those spaces for those things. And most of our understanding of fellowship is sort of relegated to that kind of thing. It's small talk and, hey, did you see this? Can't believe tech lost last night. I was crazy. Everyone was surprised by that and all that. And, you know, and so, I, yeah, me too, man. They're supposed to win the national championship. All that whole deal. And so we just sort of small talk our lives away, right? And we call that fellowship. I show up at church and I, I shake some hands and I eat a donut, right? But that has as little to do with fellowship as riding a bike does. The picture in the New Testament is that they devoted themselves to the the definite article is there in the Greek. In fact, we're going to see a trend here in just a moment about using the definite article. The fellowship, meaning they devoted themselves to the living with shared intention, with shared purpose. They gave themselves to it. It had nothing to do with small talk and hanging out before, you know, Peter got together and started teaching about whatever. It was, I'm giving myself over to the fact that we have this in common with sharing in common with, Right? They gave themselves to the breaking of the bread. What's interesting there is that scholarship has argued like crazy over whether or not this is breaking the bread like what we're going to do today, communion, or whether it's like literally sharing a meal together. And I've read pages and pages and pages of Christian people arguing about that. And I came to one conclusion. We argue about the dumbest things, all right? <laughs> because here's why, all right? Both things are actually in that same piece of text. You look down at 46, and what you'll see is this, is that every day, or I think it's 46, every day they continued to meet together in the homes and the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Now, two distinct things about these ideas of breaking bread. The first one is that it says, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of, and that definite article is there, but it's not kind of translated into your English version, the breaking of the loaf is what that translates to. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, the loaf. 
meaning most likely they devoted themselves to the actual art of and, and worship experience of having communion, sharing in that meal together because Jesus had commanded them to do it. They devoted themselves to that. But either way, if you move down to verse 46, they got together in each other's homes and they devoted themselves to breaking bread, no definite article, meaning most likely sharing a meal. And I read chapters of people that are arguing on whether or not this was, and I look at it and I go, why do we engage in these things? But here's the thing, both are right. They devoted themselves to these practices that Jesus gave them. He said, do this in remembrance of me, and they committed to saying, we are going to do this together. But they also committed themselves daily being in each other's homes, sharing meals. And I've told you this, in Middle Eastern life, sharing a meal was sharing your heart with someone. We have no concept of this in America. Zero concept of this in all of our Western culture, actually. We don't get it. We have got a fast food establishment on every corner. Eating serves one purpose, and that is to fill my belly. That's it. That's it. But in Middle Eastern culture and even Latin American culture, meals were about life. And they lasted for hours. And you sat at a table, and you reclined, and you shared hearts, and you welcomed them into your home, basically saying, this is my life, and you are allowed into it. And they devoted themselves to the practice of communion and to living in each other's lives and homes. And then finally, we see uh, Luke say, and they devoted themselves to prayer, which really, if you go in the Greek, it's a definite article there, and it's plural, actually. Devoted themselves to the prayers. So they devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Now, all this really tells us is they didn't just, you know, Luke's not saying they sort of devoted themselves to the idea of prayer, like I'll pray for you and, and you pray for me and the church prays, like we all just sort of say it but nobody really does it kind of deal. They devoted themselves specifically to the prayers, most likely meaning two things. One, they were still participating in the Jewish times of prayer, the temple. They went to the temple every day. There were five times of prayer in the Jewish life. They devoted themselves to those times of prayer, right? And they devoted themselves to specific things, the prayers, most likely shared prayers that they all prayed together. We don't really know if the Lord's Prayer was used like it is now in that time. But that kind of idea is prevalent in this passage. Like they devoted themselves to these specific prayers together. In other words, they were engaging in things that had common purpose together. And worship activities that involved each other. And they did it together. Now I say all that because Luke lists them as an important part of their life together. What the early church was doing. They were devoted to it. And I love the use of that word devoted. And it's sort of the fifth characteristic there because I started thinking about the things I'm devoted to. I mean, we're not devoted in church. I mean, at most, most, most of us are kind of a part of a church of convenience, if you will. I mean, I participate when it's convenient, both in small group, in worship, and whatever. I mean, I'm no different. Worship becomes habitual. If we don't go, someone's going to think we're not there and we feel bad. Church life is a participatory kind of event of convenience. And I started thinking, honestly, last night when I was kind of thinking through some of these things again, of what I was devoted to. And it broke my heart that I'm more devoted to TV shows than I am to the things that Luke just listed. Honestly. And if you ask yourself what you're really devoted to, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking bread, the prayers, are those in categories for you when it comes to understanding church? Really? I won't speak for you, but I'll say no. Most of us aren't. And we're offended that I will get up here and say that, but it's just true. And it's true about me. 
We create these avenues for church, and when we feel comfortable, we explore them, and when we don't, we pull away. And for most of us, church is comfortable from 11 to noon on Sunday, when I don't have something else. And I'm not advocating you need to be here for church attendance. I could care less. But if we're going to live as a community that's highly relational, we have to be relational with each other, and that involves presence together. Listen to what Luke goes on to say. So they devoted these, these th- themselves to these things, right? And then he says this. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. All believers were together, physically together. And they had everything in common. And not like who they voted for, they all like to eat burritos. But they had everything stuff-wise in common, right? Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I don't know what your picture of church is, but this was not mine growing up, and it's sure not mine even now. Part of my heart longs for that. Part of my heart is petrified by the reality of what's in those words. The truth is, is that most of us don't live relationally for lots and lots and lots of reasons, but the church is called to this high level of relational living and they were together and they shared things and they had them in common. I mean, is this how you find a church? When you church shop and you go around the city and you start looking for churches, are these the criteria that they use? Does this, do you use, does this church, are they together? Do they have everything in common? Do they share their stuff? Are they devoted to the teaching and to breaking bread into the fellowship and the prayers? Or do we look and say, what do you have to offer me? Where's your singles ministry? Kids ministry? Is your guy up there teaching? Is he funny? Why is your, your worship leader wearing leather pants? Can I get over that? Does that bother me enough to not come back? We ask ourselves all of those things. But I would venture to say that very few of us have ever walked into a church while we were church shopping and said, is this community so highly relational that they have everything in common and they know each other so deeply that if someone has a need, they sell something? No. First of all, it's petrifying. Nobody else really knows how to do it. But it's not the set of questions that we ask. But I venture to say it's the questions that we should ask. And if we ask them of each other, I think it will change our DNA. So I've said this before and I'm going to say it again because I think it's worth saying. There are really two things that make up relational community to me. And the first one is this idea of sharing life. And I don't say it tongue-in-cheek like the sort of kind of cool evangelical hipster kind of mentality of living in community and all that stuff that nobody really understands. But the idea is sharing life. It costs me. And there's two real failures why we don't do this. One The first of those failures is that I don't open my life honestly to to nearly anyone. Because we've been programmed in our culture never to do that. Because it's costly. And I don't really want to be known that way. So we wear our different masks and our different things and we show up in church. And I say this before, we fight in the car on the way here with our spouse and we hold hands on the way in. And people ask us how we're doing and we say we are great. Great. And we're never really honest. Because we've been taught that we have to show that we have this thing together and we're afraid of what happens when people really understand that our life is somewhat of a sham. That's why when we invite people over to our house, what do we do? We panic with three days of anxiety of cleaning things up before they come, right? Heaven forbid they know that my kids leave their socks on the floor. It's my socks. 
I've heard tell you about the worst fight Meredith I ever got. Should I tell that story? No, probably not. <laughs> it was all my fault, by the way. 17 years later, I realized that, but <clears throat> it took me 17 years to get there. But it was, it, it was a similar concept. Like, we just live in a way that says, I don't really want people to know, right, to know who I really am. Because I'm broken, and I want them to think I have it together. We do it in our work life. We do it in our social life. We do it in our church life. That's the first failure is that we don't let people in. And the second failure is that we don't want to. And really, we don't know how. And it's a failure because most of us don't really want to risk that way. And there's really one principle that guides us getting over these things, and that's this. To realize that my life and my stuff belong to the Lord. So when you really grasp that truth, that my life and everything in it, my stuff included, belongs to the Lord. When you really understand the depth of what I just said, and I don't expect you to grasp it right now because I'm still wrestling with it, but my whole life, my children, my family, my stuff, my things, they all are the Lord's. When we really realize that, right, it begins to change how we think about sharing life. Because it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. God has given it to me. And like this new church here, right, they had everything in common. They shared and lived with intention. Somebody had a need, they sold something. Why? Because it didn't belong to them, it belonged to the Lord. We hold so tightly onto our stuff and our money, we can't pry it out of our hand because we can't come to the realization that it's not really mine anyway. But when we begin to realize that, that even our, our thoughts and our feelings and our identity don't belong to me, then I begin to say, look, the only reason I am is because God is. Like, I'm a train wreck, a absolute train wreck. And the only reason that I exist is because God has breathed life into my lungs. When we begin to let our guards down in that fashion, sharing life begins to flow from that because we're no longer threatened by the fact that we're going to be found out. We're broken, rescued by Jesus. So that sharing life makes up this highly relational kind of intentional community. The second thing is this picture of living with intention. I'm going to do this one really quickly because I know we're out of time. Living with intention. So the book of Hebrews is another book that was really written for the gathered Jewish new kind of believer in Christ. There was no more difficult place to be 20 years from that moment that we're sitting in an Acts than trying to be a follower of Christ in this kind of Jewish community that was getting incredibly hostile, right? And now the sort of Greek oppression and Roman oppression was coming in and persecution was getting real. And so Hebrews was written to encourage this group of believers that were petrified. They didn't know how to do this. Every day they woke up and they wondered if it would be their last like, it was an incredibly difficult place to be. And the author of Hebrews writes this little encouragement, and I've always sort of hung on to it, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Hebrews 10.23, he says, Listen, let us, this gathered community, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. Right? Let us not give up in the habit of meeting together, as some have done, but let us encourage one another as we see the day approaching. Now, I say that, I just want you to hear it, because this is what he's saying. Living intentional or living together, sharing life takes intention. It doesn't come naturally. And he says, hold unswervingly to the hope that we've been given in Christ, right? Be for each other, fight for each other. Don't give up meeting together. Look, it would be so easy just to quit this. Don't, but encourage one another. 
Sharing life, living in relational community, takes intention on your part. It's not about the person sitting next to you. It's about you saying, I want to live differently. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I want to exist in a way that says, I am for you, and I'm not going to give up meeting here with you. I have zero desire for our church to grow to five, six, seven, eight, nine, hundred, ten, hundred thousand, whatever, so that we can all sit here and sing together. I don't care. There's a lot of places that can do that. And they're not bad, but they'll do that. What I want to be and what I will fight for is that we're a community that lives relationally, sharing life and living with intention. And it's not easy, and we don't do it well, and we probably never will, but we will fight for it. And it involves risking, and it involves being known. And it begins with you and me. This idea of community that's painted in Acts is not one that was easy. It was messy. If you've ever looked at someone and told them that you failed and that you're broken, have you ever tried to sell something that you own so that somebody else won't get evicted? These are not easy things to do. And they're not tongue-in-cheek. Luke's not saying, I'm going, hey, you know, this is, this is real. And it's complicated. And it takes all of us. But they were devoted to it. And if you really read scripture, they didn't do it well either. But they were committed to it. And I think as our call as a church, is this is what we're called and committed to. A messy, broken, gospel, redemptive kind of life together that says, here's me and all of my glory, and it's a mess. But I want to be a part of some, some community that says, you matter, your heart matters, and we're in this thing together. This is the call for us as Christ followers, and it begins here, and then it goes forward out these doors. And it's what the early church was committed to out of necessity. So quit living a solo Christian experience and begin to risk and get involved relationally. And so the church practiced things. They practiced prayer together. They practiced sharing meals and life together. They practiced breaking bread together. And it was an important part of their life because these things weren't just meaningless habits. A lot of our sort of Christian rituals, if you will, have lost their meaning because they've become habitual. But imagine celebrating communion for the first time since Jesus was resurrected. You think about meaning when you think about people that were standing there who had spent time with Jesus, who had walked these dirt roads with him. And for us, it just becomes a habit. We've got to break that cycle and say, this stuff matters. And it matters to all of us together. So this is a picture. The disciples... And that growing church devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and to sharing meals together. But they committed themselves to it because it was part of their identity. It was part of their shared identity in Christ. And they celebrated the fact that Jesus loved them together this much and individually. And that very night that Jesus was betrayed, that night that those disciples gathered, the night that he would be handed over, and put through a sham of a trial the next morning, he gathered the disciples together and he gave thanks and he took a loaf of bread. He took that bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. In the same way, after he'd taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant 
That when we take this bread and this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The temptation for us as Christ followers is to treat this table as part of our Christian habitual experience. But the reality is, it's so much more. It's a reminder of all that Christ has done for his deep and extravagant love for you. For the fact that you cannot work your way to him. But in his infinite grace and redemptive plan, he died for you so that you might have a relationship with the Father. That in all of your brokenness, the things that you did horrifically last night or this morning or all week long or whatever, this was God's movement to free you. And to reduce it to a habit is a tragedy. This morning, we celebrate communion by means of intention, fancy way of saying, take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. We'll have stations in the front and the back. And as Dawn and our worship team lead us, I'll invite you in the sort of chaotic movement that is to just find a place to go and take communion and make it way back to your seats and join us in worship. But reflect on this fact that some 2,000-ish years ago, gathered group of people, probably not a ton bigger than we are, did this together. And it's what's connected and united the church for millennia. And we get to be a part of it. And that's incredible. Let's pray together.